I don't want you to mow my yard. Oh. <laughs> Let me tell you the background of that is I had a friend, a really good friend in New Zealand, and he said he did an internship in the church, and he said all he did was mow the pastor's lawn. And that's just stuck with me. So I'll switch it up next time. I'll say something like cut the hedges or something. <laughs> so one of the things that we've been talking quite deeply about at our house is why your nose can't be 12 inches long. You know why? Because then it would be a foot. <laughs> Isn't that good? Don't you love that providence humor? Okay, uh, Luke, Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 1. Mary was visited by Gabriel in her response when she finds out that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one that the entire Old Testament is promising is going to come, and it's going to come in her womb, even though she's never known a man, and she's not married. And so she says, how can this be? Well, she needs a bit of wisdom, so she goes to Bethlehem, and she visits her cousin Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. Elizabeth essentially prophesies over her and calls her the mother of my Lord. And when Mary hears that, she breaks forth in worship. She, I, I think she launches in worship. It's, it's what we call the Magnificat, which is the word in Latin that means to magnify. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And last time we said, that is the heart of Christmas, isn't it? It's not to have the perfect tree or to have your kids dress perfectly or you have your home decorated perfectly or to prepare the most amazing meal. No, all that stuff, we're good, but we're free from it. It's to magnify Jesus Christ. And with that comes real grace and rest. Now, Mary begins in Luke 1 to unpack the magnificence of this child and what he's going to do. And what we're going to reflect on this morning is, is she talks about that he will put down the prideful and he will fill up the humble. Another way, another way to say that is the only way you can come to God through this child is not in your pride, but is in humility. And allow a child, allow the Son of God to die for you and to realize that is the only way that I can ever become clean and righteous in God's sight. And that takes humility. So let's just pray for our time this morning. If you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the wisdom, your wisdom, your infinite wisdom to come into the world and to come as a child, Lord, to come in weakness Father, and yet this child was the very Lamb of God. Lord, and we want to unpack and teach and lift out the truth of Mary's praise here. God, and I recognize that what I preach is very much sown in human weakness. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would water the seeds of your word and it would sprout and we would see an individual believer 
here, their lives, a growing desire to worship and know and find their deepest satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and at the same time, gospel freedom, freedom from guilt, shame, and especially during this Christmas season, freedom to not have it all together and perfect, but freedom just to magnify the Lord and to rest in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, the state of Alabama and the state of Ohio, the Buckeye State, have been very much anxiously awaiting a proclamation, haven't they? What teams are going to make the NCAA Final Four? Who are going to be in the playoffs? And for weeks, all I heard was, we can't wait for the proclamation, and we're going to build up to it, and there's all these shows just leading up to it. And some of you probably lost a bit of sleep over it waiting for it. Well, that's a little bit of the same with what was happening in Jesus' day. You see, the the Jews there were waiting on the proclamation of the Messiah and had been waiting for a long time and expecting with the Roman rule over them and everything that was happening in tyranny, they were longing for the Messiah. And so even when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they send a delegation from the temple to him to say, who are you? Are you? Do you need to make a proclamation to us? Are you the Messiah? And then, lo, an angel appears to Mary. Before that, of course, in Luke 1, verse 30, and listen to his proclamation. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Notice the gospel message is given to Mary, and it was a proclamation first and foremost. This is what God's going to do. God is going to become man. And this child is the fulfillment of the promises of David. He's the Messiah. My friends, Christmas is about a proclamation, not an exhortation. It is about what God has done for you. In Luke 1, this is what we see. And notice the response to Mary's hearing that gospel proclamation, which has got to be our response as well. These are some of the things that she says here in the Magnificat. She says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things. He has shown strength. He has helped his servant Israel. All about God. All worshiping the Lord. That's her response. Her response is to worship him for what he's done. Now I think, and we talked about it last time, Christmas in many ways has been abused, hasn't it? Right? So that rather than being about a proclamation to you of good news that leads us to want to worship and praise and rest in God, the world and often the church has turned it into an exhortation for you to go and do. Which does not lead to worship and does not lead to rest or encouragement. Let me compare it to this. Imagine a great estate and the family has one child. 
wealthy, huge estate. They go away for a holiday and they leave the servants to care for the child. And when they leave, they pull their servants aside and they say, love her, love her, love her. That's what we want you to do. And servants say, okay. And when the parents come back, what they find is the servants have worked very hard cleaning the child's room, cleaning the house and keeping it spotless. But they've never loved the child or nor have they spoken to the child. They've completely missed their primary calling. Listen, Christmas is not an exhortation to buy your children the perfect gifts or outfits or have your home perfectly prepared, though those things are not bad. But it is an exhortation to love and worship the Son of God for His gospel proclamation to us. And my friends, the gospel frees us from all the exhortations of the world and calls us to worship as those who trust and have received this good news message by faith. So that we can say, like Mary says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. And I know it. And I'm worshiping him for it during this Christmas. So here's the main idea we want to see this morning. Christmas is a proclamation of God's good news to you that leads to worship. Christmas is a proclamation of God's good news to you, which is to lead you like Mary to worship. All right, should we dive in the text? Well, this proclamation has two effects. On one side, we see it demolishes, and on the other side, we see it brings blessing. So let's look, point one, God's announcement demolishes. If you would, look at verse 51 with me in your Bibles. He has shown great strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Here's what God's power has done and will do, future tense, to those who reject his gospel proclamation about this child. Notice first to the proud. Do you see that there? He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Do you see the word scattered? It means to disperse. And, and the best picture is like a farmer years ago who would collect the wheat, and then he would hoist it up in the air, wouldn't he? He would launch it, and the chaff, the part he didn't want, would float off in the wind, and wheat kernels would come down. It would be scattered as the wheat's collected, and that's the word that's used here. Now, who does he scatter? Well, the proud. It literally means those who have a high opinion of themselves. These that generally follow their own thoughts and their own imaginations. And that's what it says, in the imaginations of their hearts. So in their hearts, there's a great pride in the knowledge, in their understanding, their capacity, their learning, their position, their ability. They have an imagination of their own greatness, you might say. Now, there's nothing wrong with the knowledge, There's nothing wrong with getting a Ph.D. Or there's nothing wrong with having a high position. What God in the gospel opposes is pride in that knowledge. Pride in your ability. Pride in your position. 
See, the attitude of man that says, I am sufficient, I'm complete, I need nothing from God, this is what God says will be scattered through this child. Richard Pratt, the seminary professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, tells a story of an incident that happened to his first grade child. He said that they had a performance, and after the performance, the first grade teacher comes up and she gathers all the little boys and girls together, and she said, you should be so proud. You did such a terrific job. And the little girl comes home that afternoon, and she's just distraught. You can tell there's this inner turmoil going on in her, and her father says, what's wrong? And she says, our teacher today told us to be proud. And you say that pride comes before the fall. What is it? Which is it? Well, Dr. Pratt explains that pride has more than one meaning. It is good to be proud of your faith, your family, your city, your church, your country, even your Christmas tree. (laughs) Those are things to be proud of. But there is another type of pride that comes from our sin that leads us to defy and move away from our creator, our God. And this is the pride that Mary speaks of. The pride of man that refuses to submit to God's wisdom. That he would save man through bringing a child into the world. God's grace is always too much to receive for a prideful heart. They refuse to believe that it's all been done for them. They always want to have some skin in the game. And God says, I will save you in my wisdom, in my way. Trust in me and be saved. And the prideful say in the imaginations of their hearts, it can't be, it can't be so simple, and I can't be that sinful. And they will ultimately be scattered in God's judgment for rejecting his grace. God's proclamation about this babe will demolish pride and the prideful. And the second thing is, it will also demolish the mighty, he says. Look in verse 52 with me in your Bibles. Verse 52. He has put down the mighty from their seats. That word mighty there, the chief meaning is one in power. One in authority. Sitting in a high place or a throne Above all, bowing to no one or submitting to nothing. And notice what he says there, take down. The idea is a king or a high place or a prince that God is saying that in his sovereignty they will be taken down. Now, those who trust in strength and might often can't bow down to something that appears weak. It appears small and simple and often judge something's value by its size, its prominence, and its strength. Now, this was how it was with King David and his birth, and so it is with Jesus. And remember what God said there in choosing the littlest David, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man so often judges by the exterior, the might, the appearance. So many 
in their might and their strength have said, I don't need a savior, much less born in such a way, much less died in such a way, and therefore they reject God's proclamation. And God's promise is those who don't humbly bow down to this child king will be pulled down from their powerful seats when they face him. Third, this proclamation will demolish pride, might, and lastly, Mary says, riches. Look there in your Bibles again. And the rich he has sent away empty. And the rich he has sent away empty, verse 53. So what is the result of God sending his son into the world? The rich will be sent away empty. The rich will be sent away empty. I need to explain that. This is the prosperous who has so much that he does not need Christ or does not see that he needs Christ because they have all in their possessions. They are full. So what do they need a Savior for? I have everything I need. And notice the response here. They will be sent away. For some prosperity has utterly engrossed their hearts. So there is no time and there is no room for Christ. They are altogether concerned about what they have and unconcerned about any proclamation from God. In every way, their trust and their love is for their possessions. And before Christ, the scripture says, they will be sent away empty. In other words, where the believer eternally has a filling and is full because they have Christ, those who are prosperous and trust in that prosperous will end up having nothing. Now, stop there. Rusty, does that mean prosperity is bad? Does that mean if I have a nice house, I should go sell it? Yes, go sell your nice house. Well, of course not. Well, then what does that mean? Well, just this. When prosperity meets a heart filled with Christ, amazing things happen. Let me say it like that. When prosperity meets a heart filled with Christ, Amazing things happen. And you say amazing things like what? Prosperity should draw the believer's love to the God of their mercies. Prosperity should draw the believer's heart to worship and praise the God of their mercies. Let me read you John Flavel, what he says. Listen. That which heats a wicked man's lust or woman's lust warms a gracious man's heart with love and light in God. Listen, that which heats a wicked man's lust, meaning his prosperity, the more um, uh, someone who doesn't know the Lord so often has, the more their heart longs for it and is consumed by it outside the gospel. And he's saying just the opposite. The more a believer has, yes, there's the same heat and there's the same but it's in a different direction. It's a desire to want to worship God for what he's given them as they reflect upon it. 
And so the response is completely different. The believer loves Christ whether he has much or little because prosperity is not their grounds for loving Jesus. The gospel proclamation is. But prosperity is an instrument to set our hearts ablaze with thanksgiving at the graciousness of God to me. So the more I say, wow, look at what God's given me, whether much or little, it should lead me in this direction. That's a believer's response to prosperity. A heart that knows Christ can never find real satisfaction with all of his prosperity and comforts. Why? Because what the believer receives from his prosperity does not compare to what they receive from Christ. Christ is not just our salvation, but he is the believer's greatest satisfaction. And therefore, we can be content with much or little because our satisfaction is not tied to our prosperity or our possessions, but they're tied to Jesus Christ, the person. And therefore, our prosperity, as we reflect on it, whether you have much or little, should lead us here to want to worship him for what we have. So the prideful, the mighty, the rich who refuse to come to the child, this proclamation is one of destruction. But to those who believe and receive this good news, it is of great blessing. Here's point two. Look in your Bibles with me, verse 52. God announces blessing in the Messiah too. To whom? To whom? Well, verse 52. The humble. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Notice those words, the lowly or the humble estate. It means those who are lying low, brought down in a humble condition. Okay, wait. Does that mean only the poor and the oppressed will be saved? The gospel is only for those who have nothing? No, that's what we call liberation theology. That God's going to free, the gospel is just to free people from their poverty. Think about it like Matthew 5.1. Let me read that to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice that, poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. The humility that he is principally talking about here is that the fact that we're poor in spirit. We're humble. It simply means those who look at their own heart, their own resources, and see the greatness of their own sin, they say, I am poor spiritually. I'm needy. And the cry from their heart is, I can't save myself. I can't cleanse myself. I can't change myself. I need a Savior. And to them, such a proclamation is like a spring in the desert. And the promise there is they will be exalted. Do you see that word there? They'll be raised up. They'll be elevated, lifted. So God takes all those lowly, humble who receive the gospel and its message, and he exalts them to become members of his family. He calls the believer a child, an heir of the kingdom, and eventually he exalts us by bringing us close to him eternally. Now, last thing here. It's not only a promise to exalt the believer, the blessings, but to fill them. Look at verse 53, and we'll close with this. To be filled. He has filled the hungry with good things. That's very similar to what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be filled. 
The person who understands his own heart is void of holiness outside of Christ and goodness, that he is broken, his best works can't save him, looking to Jesus to be saved, such a person will be filled, you say, with what? With Christ. (laughs) You will be filled with Christ. Our greatest need is that we are deficient of righteousness and holiness. And God's proclamation of the gospel is he will fill you with that very thing. How? By bringing the Holy One into our lives. The righteous one becomes your very righteousness. And so I know now all of my hope is not in my performance or not that I preach a great message or whatever that might be. But my hope and your hope as a believer and the gospel proclamation to you is all of your righteousness is at the right hand of the Father. The hand of acceptance. And as the Father accepts him in righteousness, so you are filled with him and joined to him. And he accepts you as righteous as well. That's the gospel proclamation to us. This is the wisdom of the manger, which no one can see unless he comes as a pauper, humble, knowing he is needy and broken, and then is filled with all the fullness of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story that he went to Oxford Chapel at Oxford University to preach the gospel. What an opportunity on a Sunday morning. And so he preaches And he said, I preached just like I would anywhere else, like I would at First Presbyterian in Dothan. And the moment the service was over, the wife of the principal, she rushed at him, and she said this. That was the most remarkable thing I have ever seen in this chapel. You were the first person who preached to us as if we were sinful people and needy. Later, Lloyd-Jones, confronted by one of those students, he said, why would you preach such a simple, vulgar message to us, Oxford students? Lloyd-Jones' response is, because your need is the same as the simple factory worker. You're sinful. For those students, no one had ever said to them, you have a great problem, you're dirty, and you're unacceptable to God, and you can't cleanse yourself, you're prideful, you exalt yourself above, you rest in your prosperity. Now hear God's proclamation to you. Humble yourself, look to Christ, and be filled with your greatest need, his righteousness. They had never heard such a proclamation. The gospel is first and foremost a proclamation of good news to you. The Son of the Most High has become a child, born to be God's sufficient sacrifice for you. And our call then is come in humility, come and be filled, come and be saved, come and be satisfied. And the warning then is if you see the gospel as first and foremost an exhortation to religious activities. Be moral. 
clean yourself up, especially during Christmas. Then you will come not in humility to be filled, but in pride. You will come in your own power. You will come trusting in your own possessions. And the gospel proclaims the prideful and the mighty in themselves will be scattered before God, no matter how religious they are, because they have rejected God's grace. I want to just close with this story. The story of the great lawgiver Zalicus, or Zalicus, the famous Lucretian, or Lucretian in Italy. The, the famous lawgiver in Italy who, about 700 years before Jesus, he established the Greek law in an Italian province. And one of those laws was, if you commit adultery, both your eyes will be put out. Pretty strong. Well, it was brought to his attention not long after that that his own son had committed adultery on his wife. And the people who loved this man so dearly, Zalicus, they petitioned him, have mercy upon your son, have mercy upon your son. And he was torn, what do I do? I am the lawgiver. If I show mercy, I'm not keeping the law. If I just keep the law, I'm not showing mercy. And so the day of judgment came, and his solution was to put out one of his own eyes and one of his son's eyes. And everyone applauded him as the most merciful of men and the greatest of saviors to his own son. Listen. The gospel is a proclamation to you that Christ did not divide and share in the penalty with you. It is not calling you to put out one of your eyes for your sin and God to put out one of Jesus's. The gospel is not a proclamation that you do some and he does the rest, but Christ bore in his body all the punishment of God for all of our wrongdoing. Zalicus made such a partial sacrifice for his son who was so dear to him. God sent his son into the world to make a full and final sacrifice for us. And that's the gospel proclamation. And we are called to respond by receiving it by faith, and especially this time of year, worshiping him for it when we come together and in our homes and resting in it on our best day and our worst day. Heavenly Father, we just praise you right now and thank you that salvation is not a joint effort. It is not you do some and we do some. We clean ourselves up and then Jesus dies on the cross for the rest. No, no, no. From first to last, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God is seen in that he sent his own son to come down and to bear. This child born was a child to die. To not just save us, but to satisfy us in this life by coming and filling us with God himself. Lord, I just praise you that the source of our satisfaction is not a perfect home. It's not a perfect uh, present. It's not a perfect meal. But it's Jesus Christ, the one who dwells in us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.